Have you ever received a gift that really wasn't a gift? Like they say it was a gift, but they have all kinds of strings attached. You know what I'm talking about? Like that, that guilt giver, so that person that gives you a gift, but really what they're giving you is guilt because they keep mentioning over and over how you're not good with your money, so I have to help you. Or telling your family like a Thanksgiving kind of thing, and so all of a sudden you're like, well, I was better off without your gift. Or, or maybe you have that person who is the status giver where they give you a gift and maybe leave the price tag on by accident. But it's a really nice gift and you're like, whoa, like, how could you have afforded this? Or if they're wealthy, they give lavish gifts. And it's more about a statement about their status than it is about giving you a gift. Or maybe you've encountered the manipulator giver where they give you a gift or, or do something for you, but then they use that to hold it over you. Like, hey, I did this for you. I gave something to you, and so now you owe me. And maybe they don't say it that, that obviously, but you know what's going on, that they're using what they gave you or did for you as a way to kind of coerce you or to get you to do what they want you to do. I even thought of another one. I thought about the opportunistic giver. This is that person that maybe is codependent, and, and they really want to just always be around you. And if you say, you know what, I'm busy. Like, I've seen you four days this week, and so I'm sorry. I have to go do my laundry this week. And, and then you don't have time, and then they give you a guilt trip. And so by, by giving you a gift, it's just like creating more opportunities to just be around you, but you get the sense that really it's just an unhealthy relationship and this giving isn't so much about actually giving a gift. There's an ulterior motive. And a lot of this can be very subtle, but I think all of us can know that we've experienced on some level when someone gives a gift, but really there's an ulterior motive. There is a self-centered motivation for giving the gift. But just so that we're clear, by definition, if you give someone a gift, but then you expect something in return from them, that is no longer a gift, that is a transaction. A gift. A gift is what you give to someone as an expression of your affection, of how you appreciate that person just because you love them. It's not because you need or want anything back from them, because the only thing that we should want from each other is the friendship. Nothing else. Just, just you. The relationship. But the fact that all of us are humans and we've all experienced, or maybe it's sometimes we have been the ones guilty of self-centered giving, we all know what this feels like, and so I think this can actually affect the way that we approach our God. And we can subtly think that our God in heaven is also the way we are here on earth, which is self-centered givers. And we can subtly begin to have our view of God affected. And we just ask the question, is God really generous? Does God really give? Or when God gives, does he have strings attached? And our view of God can really be altered. We can think, is God a self-centered giver? 
Is salvation really a free gift with no strings attached, where you don't have to in any way contribute towards earning your salvation? Well, I can tell you from the authority of God's word, the truth is that God does not give with strings attached. He is benevolent and generous and good and tender, and he gives to his children what we need and so much more, and there are never any strings attached. As we're continuing our series in the book of Galatians today, as we sung about and as we've read earlier, now as we continue in the worship gathering here in Galatians, we're in this series called Free at Last, and we're in chapter Three. So if you want to turn there, we'll be reading from there in just a few minutes. But just to get you up to speed, for those who maybe weren't here the last few weeks here in Galatians, in the first two chapters, the Apostle Paul, as the Spirit of God has inspired him, he's making the very clear point that we are justified by faith, that there are no strings attached, that God gives the gift of salvation, and we simply receive his mercy We receive it by faith. We trust God. We believe God. We don't doubt him. And so salvation is a gift. And that we are born again, we are saved when we stop trusting in our own moral effort. And instead of trusting in our own efforts, we trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. His death, his atoning Death, sacrifice, burial, and resurrection. When we trust in Jesus and his work alone versus our own religious efforts, that is when we receive salvation. And salvation results in us having hearts that truly trust in and that treasure Jesus. Now, Galatians 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul is creating a tension. He's saying, you are set free. You enter into the kingdom of God when you put your faith in Jesus. He's establishing you don't do anything for salvation. Jesus already did it on the cross. And so you just receive it. He's creating attention because salvation by faith alone will lead naturally to some very important questions. Questions that I'm sure you've been grappling with the last few weeks as We've been here in Galatians. Questions like, if we are free from the law, does that mean that I don't have to work or try to obey God's law? What is the point of the law in the first place? If I'm saved by the righteousness of Jesus and not my own performance, then why should I even bother striving to live a holy life? How does the law work in the life of a believer who doesn't have to earn salvation but has just received it? These are some really important questions. And Paul, who, again, Spirit's inspiring him, so he knows. He's very aware. He's actually creating this tension with the way he is writing the first two chapters to lead the readers and us today to ask these questions. So we're going to be in verses 15 through 25. Again, Galatians 3. And it answers these questions. And what it does is this section of scripture, really what it does is it like alleviates that tension. So let me give you the main idea here. 
the main idea from verses 15 to 25 is the relationship of the law to a believer in Jesus. So it's talking about what exactly is, how do we relate to the law as a believer? And so we're going to look at three truths about the law and how it relates to us. And Paul is using the example of a contract, like a legal agreement. And so number one, the first truth here that we're going to look at is what the law does not do. Just so that we're very clear, he first describes, well, here's what the law does not do. This is verses, we'll read verses 15 through 18 as we start here. To give a human example, brothers, even with the man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So first of all, what we're seeing here is what the law was never intended to accomplish, what the law was never designed by God to do. And so the law does not bring salvation. So here's the first truth. The law of God does not, never was meant to, cannot, will never bring salvation. And so God's Spirit here is using Paul, and he gives us an example he says, of, of everyday life. He says, a human example. So he says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant. So a man-made agreement. Think of a contract. He says, no one unknows, no one cancels, no one can change. He says, or add to it once it's been ratified. So he says, once you sign a contract, you can't go back and change it. So, and we, we know this. If you ever bought a car, you sign a contract. If you're, if you're doing it on payments or if you ever bought a house, and you can pay cash for a house, you probably have to sign a contract to go ahead. This, this is lots of different areas in our life. We sign contracts. So pretend that you go buy a house and you're so excited and you sign the contract and you go shopping and you, and you, you get your house furnished. And then like two weeks later, you lose your job unexpected, and you didn't really save very well because you were buying all this furniture and down payment and that kind of thing, and, and so now you realize, oh, no, I can't even make these payments because I just lost my job. Can you go back to the bank and say, um, by the way, there were new circumstances that came up since we signed that contract, and we need to go ahead and cancel this thing, so <laughs> just kidding, um, I don't want the house anymore, and so you, you, let, let's, just, let's just say forget it. How would that work? They would tell you, no way. You signed your name in the legally binding agreement, and so it doesn't really matter what new circumstances have arisen. That was on you to plan ahead. That's not on us. We had an agreement. We'll keep our end, and legally, we're going to make sure you keep your end. We'll take your house away from you. But we're not going to go back and change the contract. You gave your word. You signed. Here's the point. 
new circumstances never go back and change a previous promise. That's the point that Paul is making here, is new circumstances don't annul, don't change, or void a previous commitment. So, verse 16, it says, God promised Abraham that one of his descendants, who we know from this text is Jesus, would come and be the Savior of the world, that all the families of the earth would be blessed through the Messiah, through Jesus. And so that was the promise to Abraham, that there would be salvation by faith in the Messiah. God made that agreement, that promise, salvation by faith. And then it says 430 years later at Mount Sinai, God gives Moses the law. So a new covenant, if you will. It's really the same one. It's just further expanded in more detail. So it's not even the new one. It's a continuation of the original one. And so what you see now is Paul is saying, you can't go back and change your original agreement just because now we have the law. Remember, new circumstances don't change a previous promise. There were people that we saw this two weeks ago that had snuck into church of Galatia and was telling them that you need to do religious rituals to be saved. So you have to get circumcision and you have to follow the law. And so when it comes to this point, these false teachers were saying, yes, God promised Abraham salvation by faith through the Messiah. But if you're going to receive that salvation, that salvation will come to you through obeying the law. So you have to obey the law. You have to be circumcised. You have to do all of these religious things in order to receive the promise that came to Abraham. And so Paul here is saying, if that were true, if it were true that we would receive the promise through obeying the law, then that would nullify, that would negate the original promise. It would be God breaking a contract, God going back on his word. It would be God saying, oh, I've changed my mind. Now salvation does not come by promise. Salvation does not come by the Messiah. Now salvation instead comes by you obeying the law. And so the question is, is salvation a gift that is received by the giver's promise? Or is salvation received by the recipient's performance? This is huge. This is life and death. This is the difference between knowing Jesus and being Muslim. This is the difference of being a believer and following another religion that says, do these things, follow these steps, follow this ninefold noble path, follow these five pillars of Islam, follow this whatever, or it could even be in the church where people misunderstand salvation by grace and we actually think that it comes by us working to earn it. And Paul is saying that God did not change his mind. God did not go back on his word. Salvation has always been, always will be by the promise of God, the grace of God, by his grace alone. By faith we receive it, but it is salvation is by grace alone, through Christ alone, 
by our faith alone for the glory of God alone. This is what you're seeing here in Galatians. And so what we're seeing here in verse 17, it says that the law does not set aside the promise to save his people. Verse 18, if the inheritance, if this salvation comes by the law, then it no longer comes by promise. Salvation comes by grace or by works. It can't be both. And here what we're seeing is salvation comes by the giver's promise, not the receiver's performance. Truth number one about the law is the law does not bring salvation. Truth number two about the law. So what does the law do? So what actually the law does do? Verses 19 through 25. Let's continue. I love verse 19. Why then the law? Paul's asking me. He's like, okay, so if you don't need the law to be saved, if the law doesn't mean salvation, then why the law? He's asking you for it. He's like, here, I'm assuming your question. Why then the law? He says it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Verse 19. So then, why then the law? What's the point of it? So he says here, it was added because of transgressions, because of sin. He says, until Christ came. So let me give you the two main purposes for the law, to keep it as simple as I can. Two purposes for God's law. Number one is it reveals our sin. So the law's purpose is to reveal our sinfulness. It reveals the holy character of God, and then when we try to measure up, to God's holy standard revealed in the law, we realize that we fall woefully short and that we are not holy, that we are not perfect, and so we are revealed as sinners through the law. Number two, the law points to the promise. So it points to the grace of God. So the law, one, reveals our sin, and two, points to grace, as described here as this promise that we are enslaved, that we need a rescuer, and the law tells us that. So let's look at these verses more carefully and understand how this works in our lives. Now, I want to make a comment, though, on the second half of verse 19 and verse 20. It talks about an intermediary and, and how angels are put in place, and I read it, and I studied, and I prayed, and I got nothing. I don't know what it means. 
If you do, I would love to talk to you after the service because I don't know what that means. There are different commentators that have different ideas of what maybe Paul means in that, but I actually don't know what he's talking about in that verse and a half. Praise be to God that even though I don't understand what he means by that, and people smarter than me don't know either <laughs> what that means, um, the overall understanding from the text is not lost with this somewhat veiled or cryptic verse and a half. So we're not going to waste time on figuring out what maybe that means when the rest of the text is very clear uh, on what the law is for. So I think we just need to be honest whenever we're not sure what something means. And so, and there's other places in the Bible where that happens as well. And so we're all in a journey. So what you see here with the next verse, verse 21, where I do understand clearly what, the, what Paul is talking about there, it says that the law reveals our sin. So the law shows us our problem. It reveals to us that we can't be the solution because we can't ever keep the law, that we all fall short of the glory of God. So think of it this way. The law exposes you and me. Verse 21, though, it said the law is not contrary to God's promises, that the law instead points to the promise. But, but the law itself, it says, could never give life. That's what you see in verse 21. It says, for if the law had been given, it could give life then righteousness indeed would be by the law. He's saying that the law cannot make us righteous, and the law in itself, it cannot give us life. The law was never intended to give us life. Verse 22, it says that Scripture, so law, imprisoned everything under sin. So how is it imprisoning? Well, in our natural, sinful State. So natural human being in our sinful condition, what we're seeing here in these verses is that when we read the law and we see God's standard and we, we know how we're supposed to live and, and we see that God is defining our lives and defines how we should live, when we read that, our hearts rebel. We don't like it and we don't want it. Let me give you an illustration. Those of you that have teenage kids will understand this perfectly. Uh, well, if you're a teenager yourself, then, you, then you, you'll get this too. Pretend your parents were leaving for the day. They had to go out of town, work or whatever, and, and you were going to be home maybe with your siblings. And so your parents give you some instructions. They lay down the law for you. They say things like, don't watch any bad movies on Netflix. And then they say things like, you know those neighbors that live two houses down the street? I don't trust those kids. They're questionable. I think they've had influence on you. So when I'm not home, please invite them over because I don't know what's going to happen. So when I'm home, that's cool. I can watch what's going on. I'm not home. Please don't invite them over. And when you make lunch later today, add some veggies, you know, to your plate. Like, just be healthy. And then your parents leave. And then you think to yourself, oh, I wasn't even thinking about those things. I wasn't even thinking about watching a bad movie. I hadn't even thought about inviting those bad friends over. I, I wasn't thinking about lunch yet. But now that my parents just told me, no, don't do this, do this, now 
you want to do those things, and instead, you now want to pig out on just ice cream. You want to watch all the bad movies that you can and have a party with all your friends in the neighborhood. When two minutes earlier, you weren't even thinking those things. But now, why? Why is it that when your parents gave you wise counsel, when your parents gave you something that's going to be a blessing to you and to give you parameters because they love you, not because they hate you, because they care about you. And when you get those parameters, when you get that law, all of a sudden now your heart just like rebels and doesn't want to be told what to do. Is the problem with your parents' wise counsel? Is the problem with your parents' rules? The answer, parents, is no. There's great wisdom in those rules. The problem is in the rebellious heart that doesn't want it. The problem is not with God's law. God's law is good and holy and reflects who God is and who he made us to be as his image bearers, his reflectors of his glory. The law defines how we should live our lives that brings maximum joy in God's presence. The problem is not the law. The problem is our hearts are corrupted and rebellious and don't want to be told what to do. The problem is that we want to be independent. We want self-sufficiency. We want autonomy from God and dictate our lives and define our own purpose and define our own morality. And so the law exposes us as rebels, as lawbreakers, as evil and self-centered. That's what the law does. It exposes us. And it says in verse 22 that in 23 that we're imprisoned and that word says held captive by the law. Again, the problem isn't the law. We're imprisoned to our sin. The law simply is exposing us and it shows that we are condemned. And in our normal, natural condition, humans will respond generally to God's law in one of two ways. We tend to respond to it, one, with license. I'm talking about people who think that they have a license to sin freely. So this is that open, sexually immoral, this is the person who is living, or in, not just sexually, but in any capacity that is openly against God's word and says, I don't care about God. If there even is a God, he doesn't care. I do what's right for me. Like this is that person that maybe isn't here on a Sunday morning because they're probably in bed because they're hungover from the night before. So that's what I'm talking about, just openly sinful with no repentance. But that's not the only response to the law to rebel because there's a lot of church people that rebel a different way, which is called legalism. So license is, I have a license to sin. Now legalism is religious people who tend to embrace the law and not push back against it, but they embrace the law with a legalistic morality. They embrace God's law, but what they do is is they turn it into a carefully crafted man-made structure that they're able on their own strength to follow. 
and they impose that on other people. And it's all about maintaining the appearance that you're good and holy and a churchgoer. You have it all together, and it's a facade. But it's a legalistic facade. But license to sin and this legalism we're talking about, this this self-righteous man-made morality at its essence has the same heart. There is really no difference between license or legalism if you look at it down to the heart. But I'll say this, that person that says there is no God and just sins freely, at least they're being honest about it. They're not playing games. They're not posing. They're not pretending to love God on Sundays. They don't love God, and they're open about it. The legalist, on the other hand, is playing a game. The legalist is posing. The legalist goes to church on Sundays and serves and puts a few bucks in the, in, in the offering plate. But that legalist heart does not actually love Jesus. You see, Jesus had a very harsh words for the legalists. Woe to you, den of vipers. He called them whitewashed tombs where the outside, it's, it's washed and white. And beautiful, but the inside, there's death and decay. Like, this is the kind of words Jesus had for the legalists. And yet, for those that were openly immoral, you know what he did with them? He loved them and was gentle and kind with them. He had words for the legalists, religious people. And the reason is that it's much more dangerous because we can be self-deceived. Because that license to sin person They are just trying to find joy, and they're trying to find it in their own way. That legalist is trying to do the exact same thing. They're trying to find their joy and their purpose outside of Jesus. Maybe it's approval of other people, recognition of other people, and yet it's not joy in Jesus. It's joy in something or someone else, and religion is just the means to get there. And so I'll give you a example of how this works. Like today is my best friend's birthday. So my wife, Bonnie, she was up here leading worship. Today's her birthday. And it's just so special. Like of all the people in this world, God has left an indelible mark on my soul because of her and her influence. And I'm a better human being because of Bonnie. Now imagine, imagine that today's her birthday and I go get her flowers. And I give her flowers and I and she says, oh, thank you. And I say, oh, well, Lewis is my social obligation. I mean, if I don't get you flowers on your birthday, I'm going to look kind of bad. And I don't want to look bad because it's important to me that I look good in front of other religious people. And so, Bonnie, here's your flowers. It's my religious duty so that I keep looking good. And everyone knows, thinks I'm a good husband, when on the inside, I don't really care about you all that much, but I want to maintain the appearances. So here's your flowers. That's lots of church people. I'm not saying as you per se, I'm being general here. Where there's no actual passion or affection for Jesus. It's just maintaining the appearances. I want to look good. There's a social obligation to being here on Sundays, and so I'm going to go. And 
Church plant's kind of cool because that's even more on the front line, so I can get even more street cred. I'm part of a church plant. It's not about that. It's not about doing things to earn the approval of other people. It is about loving Jesus. We should, we should follow him because we love him. The law revealed to us our sin. But it also points to the Savior. Think about this. Where is it you first learn about a lamb dying to take the sins away of the people of God? Where in the Bible do you first see freedom from slavery? Guess where you see that? In the law. It's in the law that God reveals the sacrificial system to remove our sin. What was God telling the people of God in the Old Testament? You can't do this in your own power. You can't keep my standard. I'm aware. Trust me. I've provided a means for your freedom. I've provided a means for your forgiveness and atonement in the sacrifices. And so even in the Old Testament, even in the law, we already see grace, mercy, pointing to the Messiah and forgiveness. The law was never meant to save. The law was just meant to expose our sin and point us to Jesus, to trust in him who alone can take away our sin. So the law, truth number two, is that it reveals our sin and points to our desperate need for a Savior. Truth three, our last one. The law at work in your life. Let's, let's talk about what the law looks like, how it works in your life. So verses 24 and 25, it says that there's a guardian. And so that the law was the guardian before Jesus came. And so the guardian, some, some translations call it schoolmaster or, or tutor or, or possibly even like supervisor is the essence here. And so there's the, the, the law was our guardian until Jesus came. So in the ancient world, the guardian was like the person in the family that they would hire or that would be the teacher that would then teach that child how to be part of that family, like instill the family values and, and learn how to, how to behave in that family. But that schoolmaster, that guardian, could never change the heart of that child. All that schoolmaster can do is just teach that child, but, but the law could never change hearts and could never bring life. The law simply reveals our need and points to the Savior. It's the Spirit of God that brings life and gives us new hearts. And it's God himself who, who gives us freedom from our captivity to our sin that the law exposes, but we're enslaved to sin. What well, it says, but now faith has come. So faith in Jesus. Jesus has come. It says we are no longer under a guardian. What it means is that now you have a new heart and now you want to obey and you have the desire to obey. I want to spend time with my wife. I don't do things for her because I have to. I want to. 
I do those things and I serve her because what it does is it brings me closer to her. It's not about slavish, burdensome duty. It's about enjoyment. It's about relationship. And what we typically think of as burdensome law is nothing more than the way that you can get close to God. It's just revealing what the relationship looks like. And the whole time you recognize that you know that you can't. But Jesus did. It's about faith. If you're here and if you're struggling with this, where you feel like you have to somehow earn it from God, what you need most is to come face to face with the living God. You need to, with your eyes of faith, actually see the majesty and the glory of Jesus. What the law does is it shows us our sin, points us to Jesus, and then the Spirit drives us to him, and we fall on our faces before Jesus and say, I can't. I can't live up to this. I'm sinful. And then Jesus picks you up. He says, I know. That's why I died for you. You're forgiven. And he breathes his spirit into you. And you get a new heart that loves him and that hates your old self. And you get this driving passion to obey, not to earn anything, but to be closer to Jesus. And if we think that we're not that bad, mercy will not change us. We are set free to want obedience. I think it drives me crazy whenever whenever I see believers that get so judgmental or look down on other believers or look at how holy I am and they're not, and it just makes me want to throw up because the whole point of the law is that it shows us our sin and points us to the Savior. There is no room for pride in a believer's life. Zero. You did nothing. You received it. And so we who have received mercy ought to extend it to others. Grateful joy. This is what happens in the heart of a believer who has tasted the mercy of God is we have this gratefulness, this joy that that bubbles up in us. And so we're reminded of our sin and that drives us to Jesus that then results in having renewal in our hearts which then leads us to greater obedience. Our struggle as humans, though, is that we can all turn to imitation saviors. Every one of us can. Let me give you some examples of imitation saviors. One is approval. We can go to these imitation or like functional saviors. Rather than going to God to fill us, And to empower us, we turn to something else, like approval, for example. And when that desire gets blocked, 
then that person, we get angry or depressed or very frustrated. So let me give you an example. If you have, if you have a man who is working really hard and he's building a business because he wants the approval of other people at how amazing he is and how much success he has achieved. So he wants recognition. He wants, he wants that approval. But then his wife comes in the picture. And she says things like, can you stay home tonight? Can you, can you like not plan to work this weekend again so that we can have time as a family? And now all of a sudden, wife is blocking something. She is literally blocking him from getting approval that he's getting from work, from his business ventures. And so what happens? He gets mad at his wife. So you don't understand. I'm telling you this for the family. Really? Is it really for the family? Or is it for your glory? Is it really for your family? Or is it because you're looking for a, a imitation savior to give you hope and joy and purpose? And your wife, you just chew it out. She's, she's trying to help you. But she's blocking you from getting where you really want it. So you get angry. But it's, it's not just the husbands. It can be the wives. So maybe you have a wife that she wants to maybe control her husband or his schedule even. And so when her husband says, no, that's enough, well, then she gets upset because he's blocking her from getting control. And I've seen this over and over with adult parents, with adult children, where the adult parents want to control the adult child. And when the adult child finally says, enough, mom, I'm an adult. Like, you can't control me anymore. And then the mom gets more upset. Why? Because the, the control is being blocked. And that control brings hope and joy and a sense of comfort. There's any number of ways that we can turn to different things. Even comfort itself can be a functional savior. I mean, where we want comfort, and then the pastor announces we need help with the setup team, which, by the way, we do. Or we need help with the trailer team. So if you have a big truck, half ton or bigger, we need help on the trailer team. Like, I'm not kidding, for real. Like, we actually need help on the trailer team. And maybe, but maybe even it's not you're like, oh, I've got a big truck. Oh, I have to get up early. Oh, I don't know. I don't know about that anymore. And all of a sudden, your comfort just got blocked by your pastor. And so now you're maybe frustrated. And oh, my wife heard him say that. So now I'm going to hear about it at home. On, hey, honey, we have a big truck. Why don't you join the trailer team? And now you're frustrated right now in this moment because your comfort, your comfort is getting blocked as we speak. You're like, no, he's blocking me from sleeping longer on Sundays. We can all turn to imitation saviors. And then its essence is trying to save yourself. It's rebelling against God. And it's not going to lead to joy. It's not going to lead to purpose. It's not. Because you're outside of God's design. The law is designed to expose us, drive us to Jesus. And the way that you'll find more freedom and the way that you'll see more obedience from a heart that wants it versus a heart that finds it burdensome. I want to read to you a text, and then we're going to wrap up, and we're going to have communion here together this morning. But first, I want to read just one quick text out of 1 John 5, 
which summarizes the whole sermon in these two verses. But we're in Galatians, and so. But verses 3 and 4, 1 John 5. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. You hear that? You show your love for God by how? By obeying, keeping his commandments. And, but here's the key. And his commandments are not burdensome. It's not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, being born again, being made new, having the Spirit in you. So when you're made new, then you find yourself wanting to obey, and it's not burdensome. So if for you today, if obeying God, serving your family, serving your church, following Jesus, if it feels like a burden to you, if even now you're like, oh, this whole service, this whole sermon has been so burdensome to me. You need to meet Jesus. You need a fresh encounter with Jesus. Because God's laws are not burdensome to those who love him. And those that have been born again of his spirit. They've been set free to want obedience. Draw near to Jesus. Enjoy him in his word, worshiping at home every day, walking with him, hearing his voice. And as you walk in his presence, what you're going to find, strength, joy, and purpose. And the anger or the frustration or the temptation will begin to dissipate as you enjoy the presence of God. Because we have been set free to obey. We don't obey to be set free. We've been set free to then want obedience. And as a church, may we be a people that walk in obedience. Not to earn, but because we love and we've been set free.